here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Dream Academy because I recently spoke to one of their members. This is Nick Laid Clunes to find out more about life, love, poetry and all that other groovy stuff. Also, the Dream Academy have had a box set released on Cherry Red Records. This is going to be titled Religion, Revolution and Railways. This is a seven CD box set with, which features fantastic notes, photographs, also their three official albums, lots of B-sides, remixes and unreleased material, which is all fantastic. So, after several minutes of interesting but casual chat with Nick, we get down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Nick, it's over to you. I'm older than you, so I came, I, I was very precocious too. I had an older sister, so I started listening when Top of the Pops started. I think my mother bought back From Me to You by the Beatles, maybe. And very quickly, my sister and I took it over. Then Top of the Pops suddenly started up. So that's 64. Mm. Just I just watched, you know, one waited every week for it. I was totally captivated. And then I think somewhere along the line there, Ready Steady Go started quite quickly, and we were old enough, or I was allowed to stay up for it on Friday night. So then I saw the Yardbirds and the fledgling Donovan and the and the Motown people. And then I just started hustling my parents. We've got to go and see the Beatles. We've got to go and see the Beatles. And somehow they, they, the Beatles were doing a Christmas show at Hammersmith Odeon. And uh, they got tickets. We all went together. And the opening act was the Yardbirds. So, right. And apparently that was the night that Clapton met George Harrison <laughs> for the first time. So uh, anyway, that was thrilling. So the Yardbirds, who were my favorite band. So I came at it through there. I mean... What always amazes me when I listen to my 45s collection of, of singles, you know, which I started trying to get my parents to buy me the tracks that I wanted. And then finally, when I got pocket money, saving up to get these singles, how many of them are great? You know, I mean, it's still music I love. Obviously, music isn't something that you that you have to listen to necessarily with the wisdom of any age you're getting it whole by about I, I was about five or six some of these things I was listening to and they're, they're fantastic um the excitement of them five yes do one by the Manfreds and things and you know and odd odd little things you never think of now like uh Crispin St. Peter's You Were Always On My Mind. I mean, or no, it's not uh, something that's... Uh, anyway, sorry. So, yes, uh, it, it came in through there. Then by the time glam started happening, it was like, well, I'd already run away from home at, uh, uh, when I was 13 to see The Doors. I had this feeling that the 60s was, was going to be over and I would have never done more than sit outside Apple waiting to see The Beatles. So I, 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 I ran away with my sister and um and and saw the the doors and and hendrix and the who and everyone who just a year after the woodstock and that that act of insurrection of running away really changed my life entirely when i came back the police were there and my parents were really really horrified at what i'd done but uh it had changed my life and i was yes. so 
I suddenly started going every weekend to the Roundhouse and saw amazing bands playing and then got involved. Suddenly, the guy that was playing the record said, do you want to be my assistant? Um, because I'm going to I'll need to train someone to take my place. And then beyond quite soon, I was DJing concerts with him with amazing people. And and then, you know, I went to see Bowie. I, I was a big Bowie fan like you. I'd got. Uh, space oddity or my sister i think had got it in 69 and then i started i i i followed him through so i got man who sold the world then i got um hunky dory which was not a success and for me no. it was the biggest record in my collection but people didn't like it and within six months he was doing at the concert so i went to see him to hear him do hunky dory and I arrived, it was an afternoon concert at the University of London, and on he came in these, these, these red Dr. Martins and that fantastic suit with the sort of short trousers and the, and the sort of computer the, the digital marks on it, and, and, and Ronson looking like Marilyn Monroe, and they started up to Ziggy, and, and, it, and Ziggy Stardust didn't come out for another three or four months. So then I was smitten. I mean, any yes. all of us who were there who'd seen that, and... Um, so that was pretty thrilling. And so 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 then I felt that was my own music, really, even though the 60s music had been mine. This was I discovered this for myself before people were hip to it. So that I took that very much. And I had bought the Tyrannosaurus Rex records, but now I got the T-Rex things. And by the time Mark made uh, Get It On, I was, you know, I was fully paid out member of the Yes. So so at the age of 13, you know, one's, you know, quite young at this stage when you meet 13-year-olds. So you sort of run away from home, hitchhike, bizarrely, to the Isle of Wight Festival. That's kind of quite ambitious. That's not like just going down the road, is it, and just kind of hanging out? I mean, that's quite a daring thing to do at the 1970, you know, 1970. I, 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 I realise, I mean, I always... People say, and would you let your son do it? You say, God, no, you'd be terrified. It's not would you let them, but you would say what my parents did, which is you can't go because you're not, you won't be safe. I felt that real core belief that I that this was going to change my life and I had to do it. But I know that I think I think it's Martin Amos's cousin. She went and and she never came back. That she disappeared and was, I think she was murdered. I mean, so. Wow, yes. Because I did see, and I love the 60s culture, so I'm a, a bit obsessed with watching documentaries. And I did see one on the Isle of Wight, and that's when I saw you chatting about your experience oh, there. That was so fantastic. That was such an amazing thing because I did a, after the Dream Academy split up, I finally. I met Alan McGee from Creation Records and Oasis and everything. And when he was having the success with Oasis and he signed me and I made an album, a solo album called Trash Monk, as if to, as my name and Mona Lisa Overdrive was what it was called. And um, and what was so great, because I was really like used to doing interviews for the album and things that the BBC said, oh, we heard that you were at the Isle of Wight. We're interviewing lots of people to see who, who would come back to the Isle of Wight. And it was great because I was right in the mood. So I knew I had told my stories fluidly, fluently, as it were. And then they said, oh, do you want to come down to the Isle of Wight with us and look and talk us through the site and everything? And, you know, that was so incredible to go back after what it what, what had been, I don't know, 30 years more uh, 
and uh and they asked me to i sat on the hillside where yes on stage and i played my song on the guitar and then they said look oh, this is great why don't you just walk away it, it was the it's quite cold, but it was spring. Walk away in, and the sun was setting down over. You know, it's a beautiful thing, the Isle of Wight. So, you know, a beautiful place, and the sun was setting. And I walked away towards it. They wanted to film that. And I looked down and I thought that my 13 year old self sitting there and how hard, difficult it was to get to see this. And I just kind of said, I've arrived. <laughs> Even though, you know, that's it. I can let it go. All that that I wanted, I now I feel I have as I walked off into the sunset with that. That was quite a long time ago. So yes, so you know it was a magical thing. I'm so glad you saw that film because I I I really that meant that's huge to me. Yes, well, I, I, you know, not only does one record these on the trusty VHS, you record, you know, we watch it about three times, and so I know it very well. Even the boy bit where you sort of you're on the train, and the, you know, some cool cat, you know, is kind of winking. Yeah. and it's just such a lovely bit, yeah, and this kind of that that guy, you know, like yeah, stick with us, and we'll be okay, and says yeah. something kind of cheesy, but of its moment. And I thought, my God, that's just amazing. So you were with your sister, weren't you? I seem to remember. I had a broken arm, and I said to my sister, "I'm going," and she said, "I'm coming too." Then you know, you're not going on your own. So it was like every, you know, it was weird. I'd been thrown out of of school, and so I was at this sort of school that wasn't quite, you know, it was there were older boys, and there were some girls for the first time in my. Now, so this was like 12 to 13. And they, a lot of them said, I mean, two or three of my friends said, oh, we're all going to the Isle of Wight. But I don't think any of them went except me. So I got my ticket because I thought they're all going to go. But it ended up just me and my sister. Anyway, it was it was brilliant. Was yes, brilliant. well, it, it was. Uh, but just on the practical level, how did you get back from the Isle of Wight, by the way? With the friends, the man and woman that we met on the train, who I still know, who's still one of my best friends, who's written a huge series of opera guides and is a Wagner obsessive. You know, he and his girlfriend, they let us sleep in their tent because they were going to be up all night and watching all, because the bands played all night. I mean, let yes. me come on till about five or six in the morning um and uh and uh they we had no money they let us sleep in the tent they befriended us they t showed us that brown rice was what people ate and things like that you know we were totally wow macrobiotic we never even heard of it and then we um when it was time to go home, they they just took us with them and they paid for tickets. And on the way down, we didn't buy tickets at all. We sat in first class because we because <laughs> there were too many people in in second class with with tickets. And whereas we had no tickets, we just sat there waiting for the acts to fall. Yes, all these two other friends came on. I suppose there were so many people on the train. Somehow, it's life. It depends on these. These moments, moments yes. Of, of, you know, of, of, of these lucky accidents, you know. Because a few months ago, I watched that film, Woodstock 99, where, you know, the three days of hell, and it gets worse and worse, and obviously they've got those really heavy bands, rap metal bands who are thrashing about. I mean, the Isle of Wight 1970, it does start getting, it looks quite tame compared to Woodstock 99, by the way, but it's still quite terrifying, because this is, like, very different to the Woodstock yeah. 69, where everybody, you know, was peace and love, even though Michael Lang's organising skills leaves a lot to be desired. Um, did you, as a 13-year-old, were you a little bit terrified of the White Panthers and hearing these kind of 
beaten of the fences. Not as frightening, not as frightened as them as I became later with Mick Farron and everyone who I actually got to know all those people later. So I but I uh I, I wasn't. I was so excited. You know, I really wanted to be amongst the alternative society, the hippies, the fact that they were tearing down the wall. It was a bit it was a bit scary the way they were pulling down the uh, the, the corrugated iron, which was to stop people. And by the time, you know, every day people were outside playing the Pink Fairies or Hawkwind were outside this corrugated thing, playing their own songs, saying, tear down the walls, make it free. It was all part of the revolution, you know. Yes. So excited. But when they announced from the stage that, that it was now a free festival, it's like, Oh my God! So things are changing completely. I mean, how come we didn't get lost finding our way back to that tiny tent? I have no idea. And how did we find that little tent? Because yes, water played. I I couldn't really. Uh, I was so tired. We we'd set off in the morning to hitch, and we'd hitched on a motorway. We didn't even know where the Isle of Wight was, so we were hitching on the only motorway I knew, which was like in Chiswick. And thank. God, it started to rain and nobody gave us a lift. And I just said, we're going to have to go back to Paddington and take the train from there. Or well, I think it was Paddington. Maybe it was uh, anywhere, I, wherever the right station was. And you had no mobile phone or anything. So it was very... Uh, anyway. No, I mean, we didn't even have a, a phone in the house until the late 70s. So um, God knows. Trips, trips to the phone box were quite revolutionary. Well, quite an adventure, really. A day out for our family, I think. But look, so it's kind of interesting. So it's sort of as you hit 14, you realise that, you know, Morrison's died, Hendrix has died, Joplin, I mean, she wasn't there. But the 60s really did end on a bit of a downer, didn't it? How did you, I mean, did you just kind of surf straight into the next decade without as oh, much as I... I'll tell you what I did. No, I, I, the Isle of Wight really changed things. So what I did was I started going to these things. They had Sunday afternoon concerts at the Roundhouse in Chalk Farm. And the guy who'd been the DJ at the Isle of Wight was called Jeff Dexter. And oh, he, Jeff, yes. So I went there every week. Now, the people that were in the, who were my friends, who they were actual young, other young hippie children like me, Mick Jones, Jeff Travers from Rough Trade. It was amazing. These people were there and we all got to be friends. I mean, when, when Mick Jones joined the clash and i were or and when the clash was starting to be really big i didn't recognize him and he went i remember you you didn't think i was hip because i couldn't roll a joint i was like oh god i was so terrible anyway i still see him he says it's an it amazing that we're we're the only ones that know each other from that long ago which is true anyway so i started going to the uh, the roundhouse every sunday and I started asking Jeff Dexter, the DJ, for these very, these records I loved, which were by very obscure 60s bands like the Pearls Before Swine. And one day when I asked him for this, a particularly rare record, he said, uh, why don't you come up and learn how to DJ? Because I'm going to manage this band called America, who I've discovered. And I think they're going to be big and I'm not going to be a DJ anymore. So... I couldn't quite believe it. I mean, I said, well, on the stage. And he said, yeah, I didn't take him up on it for a couple of months. And then he finally sort of, so I, then I did. And then I started DJing with him. So we did things like four nights opening for Led Zeppelin on a school night. You know, I mean, it was, you know, playing the music from the Led Zeppelin Stairwood Hem record. And for 
the, the, uh, we did our Hyde Park things and, and festivals and anyway so I, I started getting into this and then people would all ask me what are you going to do when you grow up and things and at the same time I started running away from school going straight into I was at day you know I was going every day so I get up, got off the train it was the circle line I stayed around on the circle line waiting for my mother and everyone who might be out on the streets to have gone home I go up around 11 o'clock straight into the record shop. And so, so I've got this DJing thing with uh, the, uh, the with Jeff Dexter. And then I, and I'm talking to the guy in the record shop and he starts saying, listen, the music you're listening to, I, you know, would you like me to teach you guitar? So he starts teaching me guitar. He's a folk singer called Tom Yates. So that started happening. And then when I wasn't going there, I would go to the Oz offices, which were uh, just further down the road in Notting Hill Gate. And they were, and I'd sit in those offices. This was an underground press, um, you know, really clever rock and roll fans who were making amazing magazines. You know, there was International Times and Oz. And they let me in there. They let me sit there all day. And they let me hear their conversations and things. And quite soon they were going on trial so yes. for, for uh, obscenity for the magazine. And so I was got involved with doing this, this thing called Friends of Oz, where we'd go on demonstrations and we'd take over double-decker buses and hand things out because we were young. And they wanted school kids because the issue that had been obscene was a school kids one, was well edited by school kids. So, so then I, I had like the... The roundhouse, the DJing, the the guy at the record shop learning to play guitar, and then this alternative thing. And for one glorious summer, 71, the next one after the Isle of Wight, was like, wow, this is like, I'm, 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 this is incredible. School could not compete. No. Very, very exciting. I met John Lennon. I mean, for five minutes on the street, you know. He was leading the march with Yoko Ono, the Oz March. My friend said, you've got to come up. John's at the front. And I went there and, you know, and so absolutely incredible. Yes. My God, that is very incredible. So as the, as the 70s progressed and, you know, we had the, you know, the beginning of heavy metal and then frog rock and then sort of the West Coast sort of singer songwriters with people like Carly Simon and James Taylor. Then we had Bowie and the and the glam period. What where were you kind of navigating? Because obviously at this age, about 16, 17, you've been, you know, you've done a lot. Both the 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 uh, the things with Jeff Dexter were probably more post hippie things that he you know Bowie had played the Roundhouse and things but he was thought to be and Mark they that wasn't quite, you know wasn't they were there around but they weren't they were more pop and there was that underground thing happening so by the time I got to sixteen so I was a real so Bowie and those things all those things I I was now writing songs all the time. Jeff Dexter had indeed managed America and America had suddenly had a huge hit on both sides of the Atlantic with Horse With No Name. So he was in another stratosphere, but he still stayed in touch. And I'd call him when he was back off these big tours they were doing. I He'd say, uh, what are you doing? I'd say, you know, I'm starting to write songs. And he'd say, come and play me some songs. Or he'd come around and, and I'd play him some songs. And he'd say, that's a good one. That's not that's not a good idea. This is good. After about a year of that, uh, I was at school. And I'd sort of failed my O-levels and I got one A-level. And I knew all I wanted to do was to be in the music world. Yes. And he came around and said, why don't you, I think you should put a band together. And I met these two guys, these brothers, and um, 
And and so I said, great. And uh, one of the brothers came over and we played. And the next week he said, I'll bring my brother. And, and then we started to teach ourselves how to sing harmonies. So suddenly we went post-glam and all those things. We went very much for a sort of harmony band, a Crosby, Stills and Nash type sound, a West Coast type sound. Um, and we signed uh, to EMI. And suddenly our manager, Jeff Dexter, joined Tony Howard. Tony Howard was managing T-Rex. And suddenly I met Mark and Mark asked us to sing on his on his last album. Mark, Mark was very hip to what was going on. So he 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 was aware of punk breaking. And then he said, come with me to the uh, Roxy. Uh, I want to see the damned because I want to take them on the road with me. And we went with him and uh, and suddenly my eyes were open. My God, we're doing this music and this other thing is happening completely suddenly. By the time our album came out, Things had changed and we'd made one album. Mark died. Our whole, he was our sort of the person who was keeping us on EMI on the label because he put us on his television show and everything. And I I just borrowed some money and went to New York and got into a whole other world of new wave and thinking, right, I've got to form a new wave band. I'm doing this wrong. And I formed a band with uh, two electric guitars and drums and um and and one of the guitarists was David Gilmore's brother. And um, it took us about a year to get signed. And then Joe Boyd, funnily enough, signed us. Even right. Folk band. And for, I knew Joe because I was a huge Nick Drake fan. And as I say, people didn't really know about Nick Drake. And I, at that point, so, um, I mean, very few. So uh, anyway, he signed us and then uh, we made uh, we made one album uh, too late at 20, a real, you know, a sort of new wave punk album. Yes. God, that's that's a that's a that's a lot to take in, isn't it? I mean, it's kind of interesting. You're sort of the Joe Boyd and the, I guess there would have been UFO, wouldn't there? And the you were just you were probably yeah. 10 when they had the the summer of love with the uh, 14 hour technicolor dream at the alley pally. But yes, I met Joe and, and Barry Miles and all those people, you know, doing it. He's yeah. still a great friend, Joe. I had lunch with him on Saturday. I see him all uh, funnily enough. I see him all the time now, and I didn't for years. I didn't, and but we were always friendly. He was the first person to hear "Life in a Northern Town" the demo playing at a party uh, where where I was, and uh, someone had got just stuck it on the cassette on the thing, and he came up and he said, "Nicky, Nicky, this is this is great," and it was like, "Wow!" If Joe thinks it's great, I mean, I, 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 I was. <laughs> Uh, anyway, he was. He was uh, yes, well, he did. He did the very early Pink Floyd, and then the Incredible String Band, and then obviously his struggles with poor old Nick Drake, which um, Martin Beverly Martin, and, and yeah, and so much. He's done. he's done so much because because it's kind of interesting, sort of having done quite a lot of these interviews. I mean, often one artist that's you know, hot in one. They get the zeitgeist in one decade, are really struggling in the next. So, you know, it's interesting, you know, your sort of ability to straddle from the 60s to the 70s, because I know I did an interview with uh, Nick Kent, the, you know, journalist who started. In a, I about... slept on his floor once when 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 he was going out with Penny, uh, you know, the, 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 I can't know, the photographer. Yeah. Um, yeah, of course, of course, because he was on Friends magazine. 
That's right. But he said when he when he first started in 73, you know, he was like aware that something was happening. And all the other journalists who were probably in their mid 20s or late were still waiting for the Beatles to reform. And he was thinking, no, there's something new happening. And it's interesting how quickly people miss that sort of moment where there's another wave of music coming along. Or they shut their mind to it. That was quite big. I noticed that, that my hippie friends, when I turned into that world of seeing because mark would seen it already you know and it, 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 they and the music was you know the music i was listening to were great the minute i hit the roxy i saw they they put on anarchy for the uk and everybody pogoed up and down this it's like my god this is our my generation i thought this i, I immediately thought this is my generation by the who for my generation and um it was uh yeah, so it wasn't it, it it wasn't a cynical move to it. It was just simply seeing because also, funnily enough, people like Tom Petty were very much. It's certain people were very included. Bowie, uh, you know, were included in the new wave punk world uh, and the American version of it. The you know the Talking Heads and Blondie and you know they had very big sixties uh, influence. It wasn't all Kill Pink Floyd. It was quite interesting. <laughs> no, the punk scene in Lon- in America, New York, especially, was so different because it's had the music was much more kind of they had much more different rhythms and guitars and lyrics and <laughs> and it was much more like you had those jazz guys. Is it James Chance and the Contortions? James, oh yes, and 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 of course and. And television and people. I mean, they were they were they were really good players. It wasn't sort of do it yourself quite in the same way, was it? And then you had Suicide, you know, this electronic band that started, who were very cool. And then you had a lot of rockabilly, because there's an amazing story with Lee Black Childers, who managed Bowie, but then he brought over a band called the the Rock Cats, who he saw in Essex and took over to New York. And Robert Maplethorpe did an interview with the bass player, because he was kind of young, beautiful, and had great tattoos. And he's, you know, Smutty Smith was the bass player. And and so, you know, and then the Stray Cats came out of that scene. So, so it was a very kind of like with... A lot of the punk bands who started in 75, 76, they hated it by 78 because everybody had become a Sid Vicious lookalike. Yeah. And it's like, no, that's not really what punk was supposed to be. So yeah. so with your new, how did you manage to get to New York then? You know, what was your connection with New York? Well, the band, my band, my acoustic band, which had sung on Mark Bones thing, was called Alfalfa and had split up. Mark died. I just knew the minute that, they, that EMI wouldn't go on with us. And we'd made a second record, but it, they weren't going to put it out. And so I I had a girlfriend. I'd met a, a new girlfriend. And she said, my sister lives in New York. Do you want to come with me to, to America? It's like, to New York? I was like a dream. I just, I, I, my all the music I love, you know, so much music I love came from America. So I said, I haven't got any money. And she said, that's okay. I'll lend you the money. I know you're going to be successful sometime in your life. I know you are. And I'll lend you the money to come. So I said, okay. So we went. And of course, once I got there, I just didn't want to leave. I just stayed as long as I could. I outstayed my welcome as long as I could, you know. And when I came back, there was actually a, uh, she was right, because there was suddenly a payoff for the money that EMI owned, uh, owed us, and I was able to pay it back. So. Yes, well, that's, yeah, because then during that period, I mean, New York, you know, you had CBGB's, you had Max's Kansas City, the whole Warhol beer period, Dancetiri. Johnny, Thun- uh, 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 Johnny Th- I was a huge Thunders fan, and and he was so beautifully dressed as well. It was fantastic, and I I, I, I took her to everywhere, you know, and I and she went, to, we went to Max's, and uh, 
And the audience were like hell's angels in those cut-off denim jackets over the leather. And when they applauded, I was right near the stage and you were sitting on this thing with your beer. When they applauded, they took their empty beer bottle and they just smashed it on the table. <laughs> I was like, ooh, right, wow, that's that's okay. So how did, did you manage to, because at that stage, you know, there was a lot of hard drugs. Did you manage to sort of keep your sensibility at that stage? Because obviously most people went, oh dear, I got a bit of a habit. And Johnny wasn't, you know. Right, no, I mean, all through... You know, I was part of the whole generation. So for, for us, we tried everything. That's how it was ever since what was 15, 16, just went on. But then friends, or not friends, they were slightly older people. When Johnny Thunders came over and those and all those people came to England State and, you know, and then when the, the pistols rehearsed in this squat in St. John's Wood and my band, believe it or not, the acoustic band, they we were the, always often there. So you suddenly saw things getting much harder and I, and it was, it was a bit kind of grubby as well. It all got a bit kind of harsh and it wasn't, it wasn't something that appealed to me. It wasn't, it was a bit, it seemed a bit dark and I knew my rock and roll history pretty well. Yes. So many people had gone that way. I wasn't really, it, it didn't have the, flourish of flower power <laughs> it had a rather yeah i was in new york when when uh i was in new york again when when um just a few months later when when sid died and when he overdosed yes and so you know it was all and um, you know murder and everything it all got a bit dark but a bit bloody yes this is quite true but then when you came back to the uk then we had the the blitz kids and new romantic yeah. stuff there was the god yeah. scene and the bat cave happening there was the trevor oh. trevor horn production sound how did you oh, then wasted no, through there because actually first of all it was the it went from new wave you know punk got softer into the as far as i you know was aware in into into the the the, the, the uh new romantic movement and that was amazing because that was starting to get more theatrical so if you loved your bowie and things then it was getting more like that so then the my band the act my electric band we started to play a few of those places but i was starting to get aware that that wasn't we didn't have any synths or anything so you know and all those bands would synthesize our heavy so we all we auditioned uh, uh, keyboard players and we, I met Gilbert Gabriel, who played uh, organ and had a, and then had a string synthesizer. And it made the act, my band, sound much better. But he didn't want to be in the act. He wanted to make a different kind of music. And so he and I started to play together alone without the band. And we started to write songs. I'd always written songs on my own. Now I started to write music with him. And uh, and then he and I started going out and playing just the two of us in these new romantic clubs, and the, at the same time that the 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 comedians started the alternative comedians. So you could play on a Tuesday night in a half empty sort of quite smart restaurant place, and the comedians would go on. But before that, you could go on and do numbers, <laughs> and then there'd be Steve Strange there and people. It was all very. It was very exciting. And then the look, you know, you could get into whatever you wanted. You know, it was very, I that was wonderful. But we weren't, Gilbert and I, we weren't really 
new romantic but we got to play all those places and uh and then but and it was very accepting the new romantic thing so that they would let you our uh, we were trying to do more experimental music it was a bit 60s for them but we were doing our own using orchestral instruments and things and that yes because with the act you had joe joe produced that album didn't he joe boyd were you pleased were you pleased with the results of it uh, no, not really. I mean, it sounds really good now, but I was fighting all the way because I really wanted to make music in colour, but I didn't know how to do it. So it was quite black and white what we were doing. You know, we were working in sound techniques that with John Wood, the place where he'd done all the Nick Drake stuff. And they were setting up, we'd set the band up and we'd play it. And, and, and we, you know, it was very straight that was the way it was going to be done. You know, it was quite live sounding. I wanted to sound like like early Pink Floyd. I, 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 but I didn't know how you made those sounds. When I met Gilbert, we started to learn how to make those sounds. And then I realised I have to go with this. And everyone went, what are the rest of the band? Went, what do you mean? You know, you go, we kick the wine. Things are going <laughs> You know, but it was it was it was important. It was calling, you know. Yes, it was calling. Did you go to that club called Is it Alice in Wonderland? There was a sort of very flamboyant club which was DJed by was that guy from Doctors, uh, Doctor, Doctor and the Medics. We played there, of course. We played there as the act. We we played with the doctor when the doctor was DJing. It was underneath uh, Gossips in uh, in Mead Street in Soho, and then we played upstairs. Uh, they the, opened this brilliant little three stories of an old club called the Gargoyle, and we Gilbert and I were now on our own, and we were wearing tuxedos so that we could have a look because we hadn't got any money. We had secondhand tuxedos and a white shirt. And we used to play before the uh, after the strippers. The strippers, because it was Soho, the strippers were stripping in this tiny little theatre on the top floor of this club, which had three floors. And the strippers would come off, and we'd go straight on with our tuxedos. I'd play, and he'd play <laughs> the people, and that got us into uh, you know a whole new realm really yes and the alternative comedians i mean stuart lee often talks about it i've done an interview with a man the ice man who used to have a block of ice that he melted there was another guy who just smashed records on stage and then there was various other people like obviously the young ones and things yes exactly so you met all those guys well yes they i mean they weren't particularly interested in us and you know and we weren't particularly interested in them but it was thrilling to see it happening and this cross fertilization because it was a new it was a new thing it was like punkin punk had come now to 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 the comedians and now somehow that fitted all in with the with the with the with the new romantics and then the the great um theatrical costumiers for who who made all the costumes for for opera and things had a sale of all their clothes uh, to, to sell off so they could make room for things and sold off like 50 years worth of clothes and all the new romantics were there and we were all there buying these incredible little waistcoats yes. the, the very hip uh, most, mostly those things were worn later by the Dream Academy by Kate in the Dream Academy and things and and um, and what was funny because you'd then go to a cafe 
and the girl that was waiting on you, or, you know, bring your coffee, she'd be wearing one of these things. You go, oh, do you go to Fox's? You know, get your, oh, yeah, wasn't that sale fantastic? And the whole of London suddenly was wearing like cockatoos <laughs> wild opera. Yeah. Yes, that's quite good. How did that political period, state, you know, have you know have an impact on you? Because obviously, seventy nine Thatcher gets in. Then we have the Falkland War, the miners' crisis, which is kind of pretty depressing. Yeah. Then we have Green and Common, the, the the threat of nuclear war. What was it like for you, sort of struggling well, into the eighties? I'd retained my political feelings, which honed in that early part with the Oz trial and the whole of the post, you know. Post Dial of White, things got very political, and the people who'd been trying to tear down the walls and turn it into a free festival, the White Panthers and the Oz people, they were very, they were political, Felix Dennis. And so I got very into that. Then I changed tack about 16 and got fully realized I had to just concentrate on the music, but the political ideas were still there. So that's started to come into to the songs so even life in a northern town you know it's it's about going to newcastle seeing the empty docks it was of the miners strikes all those things and the you know britain suddenly got certainly in the north but under thatcher under the boot of thatcher it got really uh very depressed and it was a real us and them time it was a you know the it, and politics came to the fore and one's protest chops came back out. Yes, well, I think a lot of the bands I seem to have interviewed, they they had that period of unemployment in the 80s and Job Seekers yeah. Allowance and Enterprise Allowance schemes, which, which gave people a grant to almost, you know, make music. That's what's so different about between us and America. In America, if you, if you play other people's songs, you can probably play in a good band five nights a week and make a living. Here, you can't play. If you can play other people's song, nobody wants to hear you play them. So we all went on the dole. Well, I think I started by getting £6.80 a week. I mean, I you couldn't work it. You couldn't get anything else. You went on the dole. And there, and there were a few other musicians there. But otherwise, it was quite a lot of quite old people. And and then, but that's what formed things like Allowed Madness and the specials and people to form. It's fantastic. It was a Absolutely, you're absolutely right. It was like a grant from the <laughs> to do whatever you wanted artistically. You yes, know? they could take a massage those figures. But then '83, massive year in the eight, it, it, the Smiths form. You know, the Smiths appear. What was that like for you as a sort of playing music, being in bands, and suddenly seeing Ma Morrissey and the well, band that was right in the middle of Gilbert and I? We just—I don't think we even met Kate yet, but we had started to make our demos. We'd taken them to every record company. You know, I still knew people at EMI and things. So everyone turned us down. Then we started to go to, you know, Beggar's Banquet, Jeff Travis, Rough Trade. And when we went to see Jeff Travis at Rough Trade, he played us. He didn't want to sign us, but he played us his new thing. And it was the first tracks of, of Morrissey and Ma, of the Smiths, and we just loved it. About five or six months later, we were really rock bottom because we... We had no money and we weren't getting, we had the, there was no real, not much happening, um, you know, no sign of a record deal. And then Jeff Travis called us and said, look, can, can you come and meet me again? Now Kate had joined the band and then he said, look, I'd like to take your music with me when I go to America because I'm going to play in the Smiths and all these other things I'm doing. Can I take your tapes? And we said, yeah, we had no expectation of, of any you know, why not? Things are so bad. And when he came back, he said, 
you know, actually Warners and, and Sony both loved the music and they they would like that you're in a bidding war. And suddenly <laughs> a year, these long years, which had actually were talking about, I mean, look, I had these periods where I actually got to make records, no doubt, and even did some TV shows, but I, it was a failure, really. And failure had motivated me to keep going. And by the time I was 28 now and 84, it was like, my God, I just, if I fail, I got no safety now. I'm going to, I'm going to fall so far. There's, I have no qualifications and no talent or anything. And then when Travis came back and said, you're in a bidding war in America, it's like, my God, it's like, it's changed. Everything has changed. <laughs> and, and off it went. And and it's never, it never, it never, it never went back. So. No, it didn't. And meeting Kate, how did that, that uh, come together? I was, Gilbert was playing, it was just the two of us, but he was, he's a very, um, he's a driving force. He's always trying new things and throwing, he'd always be calling me up and say, I've written this and come this, and I'd be forced to get back writing something myself to combat it and say, what about this, you know? And then he said, I'm I'm, I'm actually playing with these people like a, a, a cellist and a flute player and a, and a sitar player. And I went round, I said, all right. You know, I went all the way to see him and I thought, Oh, I'm not, oh, they're not, they're not, they're not good. But my God, the sound is very interesting. With was what, that the Ravishing Booties? No, this was before Kate wasn't in this. So she, this was Gilbert on his own, working with the with these people, playing, jamming with these people in Southgate. Right. So I said, all right. So I've, we've got to find some interesting things. But these players weren't really up to it. I didn't. They weren't. You know. So and it was ruined. It was just him. We had a, quite a good thing together, just the two of us. So. A couple of nights later, I went to a friend was DJing at the Architects Association because and he had a little he had a little uh, guest list. And so I was on his guest list and I went to say and I, I walked into a big, beautiful architectural room in Great Portland Street. And the light was flooding still through the windows. And I, I stood there with him listening to the music he was playing because I didn't know anyone. And then a friend who I did know came over and he went. Are you still looking for people who play weird instruments? Because he'd heard that I wanted to work with um, different instruments. And I said, yeah. And he went, grabbed me by the hand and he took me across this crowded room. And there, standing in the window, was Kate St. John. And she said, he, she said, he said, oh, this is Nick. And he said, Kate, she said, I said, what are you playing? She said, I played Coronga, which I didn't know what it was, or an Oberlein. Ob I went, oh, I love that. Well, you know, and she, I, I said, what have you been doing? She said, I, I was in the Ravishing Beauties. I said, my God, you guys just played with the Teardrop Explodes. And she's, oh, yeah, yeah, we just played Eric's. You know, it's like, my God, I've been reading about it in the Melody Maker. I said, well, you know, Gilbert and I, I've got this group with this guy and we're trying to play with, we think, you know, maybe just adding maybe the odd orchestral instrument, different instruments. And um, I said, oh, how interesting. I said, well, we, you know, yeah, we play it quite a lot, but in, in his bed set, you know, and it's like, you know, don't get, don't, you know, you've been in the ravishing beauty. So she said, I said, she's, she'd be happy to come along. I said, tomorrow we're playing in Southgate, you know, in his bed set. And she said, oh, well, come and we'll go on the train together. We went, we played for a couple of numbers and that was great, probably for about half an hour. And then his friends, the sitar player and the cello, their cellist and the flute player came and it sort of all fell apart a bit. And then she and I got on the train and went back and on the train, she said, I know some people who are really, really good orchestral players who really love rock and pop and and uh, and then they'd be would you like me to introduce you i said absolutely 
And she then introduced me to uh, us to uh, Adam Peters, Ben Hoffnung, and a few other people. And we started um, working with them. And that was fantastic. Then, you know, then by then we were playing uh, a disused casino in Berkeley Square. And so we had this big band and we were playing and we already had life in a northern town. We'd be playing it and it was it was starting to get very exciting with them, even though no one was interested in signing us. We were we were starting to sound really pretty. I I was you know I thought I knew it was something different. And yes, and yeah. then that was the tape or the recordings that you gave Jeff, and he said this is good. Ah, uh, my ex roadie from my first band. Tarquin Dodge, who was now had been an AR man and signed the Straight Cats and the Beat, was now a manager. And I was had gone to him to say to play him things, and he didn't want to manage me or us, but he heard Life in the Northern Town, which wasn't called Life in the Northern Town, didn't have those words on it. And he said, This is good. I'll I'll put up the money to make a proper demo of this. And he he heard it. And uh, we made the demo. It was a disaster. I fell out with the producer in the middle. He walked out. I had to finish the session and get it on my own. But it was good. And that that was that was the basis of the one that we ended up putting out. So um, it was him. So And that's what Jeff Travis took, along with all those demos that these record companies that had given us. You know, what they do in those days is... London would say, go and make a couple of tracks, and you'd make mm. you'd have an afternoon in the studio, or another thing. So over the months, so now Gilbert and I have been together for a year, and David Gilmore let us use just play our set in his studio setup. We just recorded it. So we just took the best things we had, and that was on our tape of what we had, and we were taking around the record companies, and that's what we took to Jeff Travis. Yeah. Yes, the the end of '84. Did it yeah. feel like that 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 period that it, the stars kind of lined up beautifully, and and the sound yeah. was just kind of the lyrics, the the vibe of the band were just it, all it, all it, one. It, well, it's interesting. It, yes, it felt like we were doing something that we that we'd stuck to what we believed in, and now at least we'd been signed properly by our, by the greatest record company in the world. I thought Warner's at that time, they had Prince and Madonna as, who were paying the bills for all of us, but it was R.E.M., it was Neil Young, it was it was just all these, anyway, and so many interesting bands. And, and so, but everything in London, in England, was white boy soul you know was uh i mean that was the predominant thing that had come through the new romantic not not the not the specials and things but you know a predominant movement of of, of boys with quiffs playing electric guitar and synths and that had spawned duran duran and uh spandaus and all of those and they were and that was what was really and everyone was jumping you know everyone's trying to make it nobody's got any money everyone's jumping on the all right let's do that and yes they, but we didn't want to do that. And it hadn't worked. Nothing worked for us. And I'd already had two bands and they'd never, neither of them had worked because I'd worked out. I was copying other people. And now I didn't want to copy anyone else. And Gilbert didn't want to. Yeah, I don't think he was capable of copying anyone else. So we started making this more original. When Kate joined, it sounded like no one that one knew. And by the time we emerged out from it, we had had long hair. People didn't have long hair. They were horrified. And uh, <laughs> playing with acoustic guitar again. I, I tell you, you could 
buy an acoustic guitar. You know, it was, nobody wanted them. They, they, it was totally out. Uh, only Roddy Frame had come back with an acoustic guitar. And he'd quite quickly gone on the after the Hardland, Highland Hard Rain. He'd gone into something else. Nobody had them. So it's like, are you guys hippies? People would say, and we say, well, we're new psychedelic. But that, you know, but when we went to America to see the record company and they said, we'd like you to make these videos. Uh, we said, oh, I want to make videos and, you know, I make films. And uh, they said this new thing, MTV, is happening. They introduced us to these sort of just post students and they had long hair and they were giving us super eights and everything. You realize, hold on. And now when we got back to London, the guy had a clothes shop called Scott Crowler. He was he was like us too. Then we met Peter Savile and we said, hold on, there's this whole, we're, we're, there's this small thing that's where it's at. We're all, we don't need this outside thing that everybody else is doing. We're doing this and we've got this small, and America really took to that. They loved it because they they loved the 60s. So they loved the, our 60s elements, though we were very much, we were our own version of it. It wasn't a 60s revival in any way. And, um, you know, it was 80s in its way because it had the thing, except we never sounded really 80s, which is, I think, why it's still... Yes, like this is this is true. This is very true. I mean, there's that 80s sound, which is not great. Because there was that new Paisley sound that had come over from America as well, wasn't there? Like, I suppose the Bangles, but the Rain Parade and... and... Yeah, yeah, and the Dream uh, Syndicate, I think, were in that, though I didn't really know. We didn't really... No, and then there's that little bit of kind of acoustic country like green on red and long yeah the yeah long, right. oh the long yes i know dear old sid griffin so they all sort of embraced that side so us indie kids quite enjoyed that because we really yeah. you know i know we shouldn't say the word right. hate but we weren't big on the trevor horn production you know no completely you're right and uh yeah yeah and and actually that our first tracks we did with gary langham who had been trevor horn's engineer because though we'd made the the track life in the northern town with this guy george nicholson who tarquin knew was a he was a uh, a demo producer at warner brothers when tarquin had been in so we worked with him and then i took it to david gilmore and worked with him because i he said look this is the best thing you've ever done he knew me from from the act with his brother and he said you know um so he worked what that so, but but when it came to making the record there was no question that david wasn't going to you know do it produce it so and george nicholson no so so we went in with gary lang when they came they heard it they said this is great it's very expensive and how did you do that life in a northern town i said well you know we made it with george nicholson i produced it with him uh because he because he walked out and then <laughs> i had to finish it myself so i said you know we did it together and then and then I took it to David and he just sort of helped um, get produce it, you know, I mean, mix it and get it. And 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 just if there was a weak thing, he'd fix that. And and they said, we, we'd really like you to do the album like that. It's like, I'm sure you would. So I had to go back to David and say, you know, will you, uh, would you, uh, look, they'd really like us to go on like that. And he went, well, I'm, I'm not sitting in a studio with you for six months. So, but, but why don't you do the way you were doing it. Just go and make the demos like like we made that look Northern Town. Do it with George, and then bring it to me, and and I'll spend a, a, a time at the end before we mix it, fixing the things that I think we could get the sounds better on. So we did that, and in the end, in between, they put out Life in the Northern Town. It was a hit, and it was a hit all over Europe. Though we hadn't gone to America yet, and 
And then suddenly it was, you know, he knew things were really, you know, and suddenly we were in, worked with him for about three months in the studio, getting the album ready. And America didn't want to put out Life in the Northern Town till they'd already got an album ready to go. Because when they go, they, they go like a military campaign, you know, they, they go... <laughs> And you don't know if you've got a hit in America for six months. You're working it all over the country. And it didn't, there was a lot of talk about it not going to be a hit because um, even though it had been now a hit all over Europe and England, and, and they said, uh, because it hasn't got a base on it. And right in the middle of that, um, when Dove's Cry came out by Prince, and that hadn't got a base on it, and I thought, well, I don't, I don't have a base on it because a base ruins it every time yes. it's only got every time you put the bass on it you can keep telling it's only two chords yes it's a tricky one isn't it it's very there was some very i mean there was that sort of program on um channel four on a friday afternoon was it the, the tube that used to have yeah. some very quirky things and there was another band who did some stuff which got absolutely slated in the enemy was it shelly ann and the orphan, yeah, the orphan. Oh, I yeah. love jeff travis had them they were great I, we loved them the shelly and again, you know, very, I mean, the 80s did have a lot of very ex, um, experimental music that if it was on the John Peel show, you could get away with anything, wasn't it? And the more obscure and the more peculiar, the better. Because at that stage, you know, there wasn't just the Smiths, there was all the world music stuff like um, the Bundu Boys and Gregory Isaacs on the reggae front and then sort of Bulgarian I folk music. Yes. It was, it, it and was we loved all of that. We were, we were the same as you, I guess. I mean, you know, we, we loved it. When people always say, you know, when they say to me, what kind of music do you like? I say, good music. I mean, if if you heard a great Gregory Isaacs track, you adored it. If you heard money in my pocket, but I just can't get no love. You said, oh, God, I love, God, I have it. If you heard, you know, um, don't push me because I'm close to the edge. I'm trying not to lose my head. <laughs> you know, you'd say, what's that? They say, it's called The Message by Grandmaster Flash. You say, I gotta have that. And then you find out that the Pet Shop Boys are now working with those guys in New York. And you'd heard the Pet Shop Boys demos when they didn't even have the dance bit to it. Yes. You know, thought they were great. My God, someone was taking our photo and I said, What's this music? And he said, This is the demos of my friends they call the Pet Shop Boys. Oh, terrible name, I thought. <laughs> and, and, and I said, and, and it was it had that voice. He sounded like Al Stewart to me. And he said, I am the head boy of a school of thought. That was what how the song went. I said, this is brilliant. I'm the head boy of a school of thought. Whoa. Um, I was a bit anyway. And then out came West End Girls. It's, it's amazing. Anyway. Yes, I mean the organicness of it all is quite fascinating. Then that sort of once you've had this kind of incredible hit, how do you then sort of follow it up during you know the next year to um, think right? Yeah, we met when we had the party. Warner's threw a party for us in in Los Angeles to welcome us to the company, and they invited Talking Heads and Quincy Jones because they thought you'll like these people, and they've uh, you know. Um, and then uh, it was to have them say, "Don't uh, don't have a hit on your uh, on your first record because you know don't try and have a hit on your first record uh, you know because uh, it's all downhill after that." That was uh, that was the, what David Byrne said to me. You know, you want to make sure you don't have a hit on your first, but. You know, it was uh, it wasn't to be. And Warners had signed us saying, "Don't try and have a hit on your first record because you've got three albums you can make with us. So just take your time, evolve." But there was no stopping it. So when when Northern Town came out, it was a long, 
it was a year after it had happened in Europe, and suddenly it, it we played Saturday Night Live. That changed everything, and and we catapulted into the top uh, top ten, and it was being played everywhere. And suddenly all our videos were on MTV. It was a, and there was like suddenly people were Diane Keaton wanted us to do work on the soundtrack for her new film that she was making, and John Hughes was using us music in Ferris Bueller and it all got incredibly exciting and doors opened so you weren't really able to look you know look down for about another year you know we went around the world playing that Warners wanted you know when you have a hit like that they want you to play all over the Middle East and the Far East and we played the Philippines Taiwan Tokyo, you know, we did all that stuff. And then when we came back, I remember sitting in the car finally and thinking, God, that was about 18 months of solid work where you knew you didn't have a day off. If you had a day off, you'd have to not go to Tokyo or something. So you yes. just worked and work. And I remember sitting in the car with the three of us and thinking, I can have to come up with some more music. And I was like, God, how, you know, how do we start again? And so that was, so that then took another year of writing and then by then Hugh Padgham who was the major pr producer of the moment who produced had produced McCartney and Bowie but was really big for producing that you know the Phil Collins in the air tonight and those things and he wanted to produce us so Warners were very keen and we went in with him and we he, he, he worked with Peter Gabriel so he said I think you should use these guys from Peter Gabriel's band Jerry Marotta on drums and Larry Fast to find amazing sounds as you know on top of it and we worked in Hans Zimmer's studio before Hans Zimmer ever went to LA and Hollywood he was he had a little studio an old photographer's studio place and we played there and Johnny Marr came down and played on the next album you know it was very exciting yes it, it was quite interesting because I did a, a couple of weeks ago an interview with a guy he was the main guy from um, Men Without Hats so they had that record they, they did the album it kind of you know came out but it did, wasn't a hit so they started making the second album halfway through the song becomes a massive hit you know so they have to go well just scrub everything you're doing we want we want More that one thing yeah we want the same thing so just scrap it and by then you know you you know, he said it's it was tricky. You know, it's it is downhill because it's like, oh my god, what do I do? Of course, and the second album is difficult because you you you've spent you've got all the demos from the first one. You know, because you've been working through fear, fear. You know, you've got to come up with a different song. So you've got all these songs, then suddenly you haven't. But it's okay. I mean, the second album was amazing because in the end. I took it to America to play to the record company because we were signed to America. So I took it to them and they they listened to it and they said, well, why don't you stay here and mix it? Uh, and then they introduced me to the guy that was working with Brian Wilson and, and, and then Lindsay Buckingham from Fleetwood Mac and Lindsay wanted to work on two tracks. And then, then we went, I went into the studio with Brian Wilson and started writing, and wrote a song with him. And, you know, it was, it was all, so, you know, it was all, it was all happening. Yes. You know, even though, and then John Hughes suddenly came to the rescue. I mean, we the second album didn't have a big hit single on it. Indian Summer was good. I mean, it didn't go anywhere near as far as Life in Northern Town. But John Hughes was now making his third film uh, and asked if I would go to see him in 20th Century Fox at the studio and bring in my tracks I was working on for the new album. 
and uh, without the vocals, which I had. And so I took them in and he, he, he listened through to them as he looked through the little viewfinder playing. And he was in this little tiny room, smaller than this, in the back of a lot, you know, where the big studios, but he was in this little prefab place and he was looking, put this one on, not that, not this, not that. By the time he got to about track three or four, he heard this track, Power to Believe, and he went, get me with that film from the end. All right, now that. And then he started putting different things into his viewfinder and he went, thank you, you've saved my life again, he said. And I thought, my God, he's going to use this. And he used it all the way through. And that saved us because the second album then had this, which was a big film. Uh, yes. A really successful film. And that was played throughout like score, you know. So uh, it, it led to things like working with Brian Wilson, working with Lindsay Buckingham and then doing this. So in a way, you know, then they used to say, a, a worldwide hit will, will will give you ten years in the business, and uh, you know it's true. I mean, this it, is it, yes. I, I think Nick Lowe suddenly was very lucky with um, Peace, Love, and I'm Understanding, which got sort of put on a soundtrack, and it was like that's my pension. Um, yeah. I'm I'm going to have a nice life and just enjoy myself. So that's yes, obviously being on a massive film is great. And what was the reasoning for your cover? Somebody's got to learn sometime. When well, did that? I well, well, we loved the song and. I thought, uh, and we did it in a way, we brought the old people back from the first album, our friends, Adam Peters on cello, and we did this, it, we did it like a track from the Beatles' Double White. It was like, change your heart, look around you. I don't know how we did it like that, but we did it. It all worked out like that. Took it to America to mix the records, and then they said, well, Lindsey Buckingham saw you on Saturday Night Live. He, he'd really love to work with you guys. I said, great. So what does he want to work on? Oh, he'd like to work on Everybody's Gotta Learn Sometimes, that song he did. So I said, great. So he took, because we, we weren't sure about how we got it, and he just, it was so him. We went to his house. He just started by taking off this, and then he took off that, and then he took off that, and he started playing the bass. He can play everything. So he's playing, it's beautiful. Then he got a guitar, and he was like, dun, 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 and he was building it up. Then he got the drum kit out from the bedroom, and and suddenly there was nothing we'd done on it. It was just, he built it up. And then I started playing guitar. And then Kate came up with this brilliant choreography solo and played it through and that floored them. And then he and she did backing vocals and I sang it. And so we were, it was a joyous sort of 10 days we spent with him. And then we went into the studio and did Indian Summer with him and with all the guys he put together, J.D. Southern, all these big luminaries from, and we recorded it in the studio where Frank Sinatra had done all his work, the Capitol Records building, you know. Um, so so that's how it happened, because Lindsay took to it, and uh, and then we recorded it with him. And, of course, the record company, you know, Warner's, he was, you know, Fleetwood Mac ruled at Warner's. And so it was, you know, it was important that he, that he loved it, and it was wonderful working with him, fascinating. Yes, well, I'd imagine it was like 10 years after he did Rumours, so obviously... <laughs> He'd gone through the the next Tusk and then his 80s yes. production records, which were a bit hit and miss, weren't they? They were. <laughs> and what he and, and he was he split up from Fleetwood Mac when we were working with him during. And you know, he his point was he that's why he'd made Tusk. He 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 wanted to keep moving. He was crazy about so. So had just come out by Peter Gable when we were working with him. And he was he loved, he said, I can't get them to I can't get them to listen to it, you know. 
And it's so, it was, it was very interesting. Yes, it is fascinating. And then sort of 87, you know, the Smiths break up, massive moment in my life. And then obviously, um, yes, then there's a new wave of 16, 18-year-olds come along. Ecstasy appears. There's this dance scene coming on from Manchester with, you know, Stone Roses, Happy Mondays, Primal Scream, then the Seattle grunge scene. So how do you then, as we close towards the end of the 80s, think about, right, my third album, and you've been, you know, the band has been doing a good five years of solid work. How do you then sort of navigate that next that next chapter? You know, you know that you've just got to, by then you're writing, you're, you know, we were completely, I was going out with a girl who was a friend of Michael Clark, the dancer. She was a postmodern choreographer and sort of dancer herself. So suddenly it was the fall. Oh, and... God, yes, I went to that performance. Oh, it was brilliant. I it didn't was... know that you weren't meant to talk to uh, Marky e. Smith. So, of course, I went up to my <laughs> You were fantastic. She said, oh, just be careful, darling. He's really like, you know, he's really, he's really edgy. So I went, well, I went up and I said, it's incredible you're playing. And he went, really? Do you like it? And I said, it was like the Beatles. I came back and I told her, what did you think? And I said, it was like the Beatles. She said, you didn't. He hates the Beatles. I said, well, he didn't say that. And the next <laughs> week he was in Melody Maker and they said, what bands are you listening to? And he said, the Dream Academy. Mark E. Smith said the Dream Academy. It's like, I can't believe it. My God, the old man. Yeah. And, and yes, and I think it was with Bricks, Brick Smith at the time, wasn't he? So um It was with Bricks, yeah. It was it was wonderful. Anyway, so 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 you know, one was in that whole aware of all the things I adored Nirvana, but that they hadn't quite, I don't think they'd quite come in yet. No, they hadn't quite broken yet. So no, no. no. So, but uh, it was it was it was a vaguely different time. We were working with Anthony Moore, who'd been in Slap Happy. Jeff Travis was very keen. We worked with him. He'd been a friend of mine in since nineteen seventy seven. I'd known him, and he'd done the written the lyrics on the Pink Floyd record without after post Roger Waters. And suddenly we were working with him, and then but every time David would come off the tour of that album, he'd come in and see us in the studio, and then. He'd see me and Anthony, and then he'd start, he'd be sitting around because he was doing nothing. So then he'd start playing a bit of guitar. And then finally, after a few months, he said, look, if you want to do the album, if you can wait for a couple of months, I'll finish the tour in Australia and everything. And and then we could just like decamp to my place and, and we can carry on like we did the first album. So we did that. It was very long, took a very long time because we took these extra months, wrote some more songs. But then Gilbert came to me and said, because I was working there with David on the mixes and everything, and he'd been working on his own, Gilbert. And he said, I've, I've met Polly Styring from X-Ray Specs and Laura Logic, and I've come up with this version of John Lennon's song, Love. I said, oh, I love that song. He said, well, come and hear it. I heard what they were doing in a little room, and I started singing it, and Polly Styring started singing all these all these um, Krishna names, Guy, Guru, Daja, Sham, you know, against it. And it was like, this is brilliant. Uh, and all the time I spent in the studio, I'm almost dead with tiredness and getting it perfecting it. And now this is coming so quickly. So we just, somebody just put down a, a break beat and we just recorded it in the room. And and then when Warner Brothers heard that, they said, "Well, that's the first single," and uh, and so that was so that that's how it happened. And we went on tour. Uh, the first we'd spent all our money before on videos because they it was either m make videos or make or go on tour. 
um, that's what, what the budget would allow for. So we went on tour. And then at the end of it, Gilbert said, I'm not, you know, I've been really working on my own for so, uh, I, we wrote the songs, write the music together, then I'd take it, fashion it, change them, do all these things. And then he said, I want, I want to do that. I don't want to, you just doing that. So then he said, I'm going to, I'd like to leave. So then he left and then Kate said, well, we'll go on together. And Warner said, fine. And then she called me and said, you know, Van Morrison loved our version of Please, Please, Please. I said, yeah, I remember he came to dinner and we had dinner with him and he was total fan of the track and said he thought it was a new folk thing that we were doing. And she said, yeah, well, he's invited me to join his band. And he said, oh, and she said, yeah, and uh, I've got to do it. And I said, of course you have. And that was it. So that was it. That was no, was no band. So um, uh, anyway, so that's what, that's what happened. And then that's 1990. And, you know, bands are like, it's like divorces. Only you've divorced the three people. It's very hard. And then how, yes. do you, how do you make it again? You're right back to, like Mark Bowen said, they teach you how to get there, i.e. endless work. He said, but they don't teach you how to stay. And it's true. It's, you know, he, he even Mark crashed right down. You've got to, then you've got to reinvent yourself. You've got to find yourself again. And start it's again. Bit, yes. Hard. It's very hard. And then and a new decade sort of trundles in. And like I mentioned, those yeah. new chapters that come along and then the John Major years before yeah. Team Tony. But how do you then navigate the 90s at this stage? I I I was in quite a bad way after the band split up. I didn't sort of know I was. But it's very difficult because people know you sudden now. And they know that they aren't seeing you, you know, and it's not happening. And then you just start not going out because you don't want to have to talk to people about that. And things just weren't going that well. And then I, it was pretty dark times and I split up with my girlfriend and then I went to America because Warners came to my rescue and said, um, Patrick Leonard, who ended up producing those last Leonard Cohen records, but he had written, been writer with Madonna. He's making this group with uh, the guy from Mr. Mr., the singer, Richard Page, the great singer. But they they don't have a lyric writer. Would you come and audition? So I did that. And then I came back and I think I went straight to, I think, uh, no, no, that was it. I came back and then they offered me the deal. And they said, yeah, John, come and come to America and live there for three or four months. And so I did that. And uh, that got me through that next stage but I was pretty in a pretty dark place and Richard Page said to me look I didn't tell him I was in a dark place but he said why don't you come to hear this great Tibetan Buddhist teacher one of the Dalai Lama's people and he said he's he's talking in a thing and I, he said you'll be really interested in all that philosophy that you talk about you'd be interested in this and I went and I thought this can help me uh, this meditation is obviously this is something I'm in a bad place and I can't tell anyone this is going to help me. And I said, when Richard said, we, we, now we're leaving, I said, no, I, I can't leave. <laughs> I've got to stay with these people for a while. So he was very understanding. Please let me stay. You know, we were having a couple of weeks break from the recording. So it was OK. And uh, that changed my life when I got back to England. Um David uh, Gilmore called and said, uh, it was about three months and we were friends, and he said, oh, I'm making a new Pink Floyd album. Do you want to come and hear what I'm doing? So I, I heard what he was doing, and 
And I mean, I was getting quite low on funds by now. I was having those calls from the accountants saying, what are you going to do if you haven't got any money this time next year? And I said, I will have. And they said, well, what if you haven't? I said, then I'll get a job, won't I? So I was like, really? You know, God, don't put extra pressure on me. Anyway, David, I heard the stuff. And what was great was I was, I'd been working in a studio but with these two guys going, what do you want for this? What do you want for, you know, we were making, I was in full control of, so I'd hear what he was doing. I say, well, I mean, that isn't quite in tune or the vocal and that isn't in tune. And, but I, you know, he said, don't try and write me songs. I said, no, write with me because you know, I'm already doing that. I said, no, that, I'm not. So then he said, well, why don't you come and produce my vocals? Because I can never get them. Really, I think they're in tune and then I come out and they aren't and everyone tells me they're fine, but they're not. Yes. So, you'll know how I guess so I did that and then every week I'd start to go there and hear how the album was going you know just go to his house with Polly who was his now his new girlfriend we've been listening Polly Sampson she's writing the lyrics and we're listening and then suddenly we started getting into the thing where he'd say they hadn't got I was helping with production ideas and then he said you know I haven't got the lyrics for this and so I started just doing what I'd been doing in America with Patton and Richard Page and and then co-wrote two of the lyrics and it was it was and that that changed everything. Then suddenly um they went I, I as soon as that was finished, I went to see the Buddhists in Nepal and I took sort of two months and I went up to Damsala and see the Dalai Lama and all these things. When I came back, the record was a number one rock, rocketing all over the world, and there was this thing saying, Would you like to come on tour with us? Uh you'd come anywhere you like, you're part of it. And I thought, no, I don't want to go. And then I looked in there. They'd sent me the, the list of they were playing like 100 dates. And I saw they were playing New Orleans that Saturday. And I just picked up the phone and I called the number. I said, David, where are you? Oh, I'm in wherever he was, New York or somewhere, Texas. Uh, I said, are you you're playing in New, in New Orleans on Saturday? He said, yeah. I said, can I come? And he said, of course. You know, we just get the get the plane ticket. We'll you'll be in the hotel. And we come and come on the tour. And I just disappeared off onto the tour. And you know, by that Saturday, I was sitting with a mint julep in my hand, listening to the magnolia tree and listening to people playing on the May on the Beale Street or wherever it is. You know, they were on the main street. They were having a guitar, just playing. Uh, and I stayed on that tour till they went to Canada for so it was weeks and weeks. And then I went to stay with a friend in New York, slept on his sofa and started making these tracks of my own because I had to get off that tour and think I must make work of my own. And and that became the Trash Monk record. Then I met Alan McGee and then made a record. Yes, this is Mona Lisa Overdrive, isn't it? There you go. So, yes, yeah, so Alan at this stage, he was a bit of a mess, though. As, you know, I he love Alan. He's brilliant. He, he, he lay on a sofa when I went to see him and he, he, he said... Uh, I said, I want to, you know, uh, I want to call it Trash Month Phenomenon. And he said, I don't know what Trash Monk, I don't know, Phenomenon or Phenomena. And then I gave him this cassette of Trash Monk and he went, ah, oh, yeah, oh, not like that, Trash Monk, one word, he said. Yeah, and he was brilliant. He was lying on the sofa. He didn't even have a desk. And I was playing in my tracks. I, it had been like the Dream Academy again. I could not get arrested. I played all my tracks to people. Nobody wanted to know. I was an 80s guy. It was I was a has-been, you know, and then... McGee listened to the stuff and suddenly he said, let me stop you there. I have no doubt that you could make an American number one if you wanted to. I said, wow, my head grew like this. <laughs> and he said, but why on earth would you want to? You know, he was a real punk guy. He said, 
what on earth would you want to make that for again? And then, you know, and I played him one track that I've written on the back of a brown paper bottle in the Bowery, a bag, you know, but you have to have booze in a brown paper bag. So I'd written it like this and all that, borrowed guitar, and I'd sung it into a cassette machine. And he said, that is fucked up. That is, the whole album should be like, it's the sound of Trashmont. And that was it. I started, and when I used to, he used to make the notes. I'd look at the notes he'd made of the songs when he'd come to listen, because I recorded in my front room, which nobody did a note at that point. I spent the money on the gear and put it in my front room. And it, the notes were always the same. Fuck it up, fuck it up a bit more. Make it darker, you know. And he said, "We're not going to tell no one that you were in the Dream Academy. You don't exist as an '80s guy, and and we're going to keep it absolutely to Trash Monk. No one will know who it is." And when it, the thing came out that week, I went down to get the Guardian, and I saw that the Guardian had '80s, so they think it's safe to come back out of the water. I was like, "Oh." God, I've been rumbled, and it was David Sylvian, and believe it or not, Joe Stromo and the Mescaleras, and all these people. I said, all these people from the eighties think it's safe, and this is that it's cool, and it was like, fuck, I'm going to be in there. And then I turned the next page, and it was album of the week, Trash Monk. Nobody knows who he is. You know, it was like that. It was like McGee. He's a genius record man. He yes, how to do it. But it was kind of amazing because he's because during the eighties, you know, he released a lot of material. Most of it kind of didn't have huge commercial success, and they and they did he did an amazing record with a guy called Simon Turner on Creation Records, nineteen ninety, which is kind of this amazing character who was a singer songwriter and composer that on this particular release had um, Tilda Swinton on, and I thought, God, that must have bombed and cost you a fortune. And he had my bloody Valentine as well, which oh, was so great. He had my bloody Valentine. He had the the, the you know the scream and and you know and he's so extraordinary when we went he would just say right we're going to now take this record everywhere i go in the world he because he was really big at that point the people want to interview me so i'm going to take you with me and they'll have to interview you about the dream about the uh trash monk record so we went everywhere and so when we were in la he said well we're the, having lunch with uh with um uh, oh, oh god who's the head of sony uh you know uh who made all the, the john johnny cash record who made the oh the, rick rubin with rick rubin and and george draculius he said they they we're having lunch with them and i mean he was def jam so i i said really i thought they were legend we kept downstairs that they're, they're in a black rolls royce they've both got huge beards and they're playing the Beatles double white on a CD and they're skipping every Paul McCartney track. So it's only the John Lennon ones. And then we had lunch. They, even though they looked like Hell's Angels, we we went to a, a, a vegan restaurant and they're only sort of tiny little, you know, um, grains and things. And afterwards, I said to, 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 to Ruben, I'm looking for a nylon string guitar. I don't want a classical one. I want like a beaten up old nylon string because that's what I want to play. And he said, I know where this one Black Market Music, Black Market Music. And we went to Black Market Music. And there it was on the wall. And they took it down. It was a Martin. It was about, it was like the one Willie Nelson plays. And I played it. And McGee, this is just to show you what a kind of person he was. He just took it out of my hands like that and went, uh, just let's get it. And I said, I said, no, 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 but I want to see if I've got a connection to it. I mean, how much is it? Oh, $800. I said, you know, I can I take my time and see. He said, I played a bit more. He went, I said, <laughs> and he paid for it. And I said, what are you doing? He said, I'm buying you the guitar. I said, what? 
no one has ever bought me a guitar. And he said, well, you've never met me. That's what, and that, is it? Is it a big deal? I don't think it is. And he bought it. I mean, it was like, what a guy. He was he was amazing. I still see him, of course. Yes. He's you know. he's he's a beautiful man. And um it's it's great that it's uh, turned out so well for him. Then as as we navigated the millennium bug and the um all that world and we came into 2000, what was your next decade like kind of artistically and when cult? the Trashmont record was finished, um he, McGee then formed Pop Tones and he gave me back my album which again is incredible. He gave me the rights, the whole thing, and then licensed it back from me again to put on his new label. And at the same time, someone I'd made a pop video with the Dream Academy with was making his first film. And he had gone in Paris. He remembered I was calling it Trash Monk. He'd gone into Les Enroth or whatever, one of those big shops actually, not, not that's a magazine, but he'd, and he'd found, he'd read about it in Les Enroth. And, and he said, this record's big in France. And then he said, I'm um, working, um, filming. Uh, why don't you come and see me? I said, oh, I'm going to be in Paris next week. So he said, well, we're doing a midnight shoot with, um, in, by the Eiffel Tower. And so I went there and I stayed up all night with him after that, listening to Radiohead, in fact, and things. And then when I got back to London, he said, I think I'd like to use tracks from Trash Monk on my as part of the score, so he said, brilliant. And then he said, actually, I'd like you to try and do the whole score. And I said, oh, he said, look, I've been listening to the Dream Academy stuff, and I think you can do it. So he said, the, the Hollywood doesn't want pop guys, so, but I'd like you to have a go. So I, I, I knew someone who worked in films, and I took my ideas to him. And everybody, I'd met the film company when they were over from, from Los Angeles, and they said, you know, who knows, maybe in a year you'll be sitting here and we'd be offering you a film. But, you know, this one, but sure, make your demos anyway. I made the demos, but we made them to a really high standard. And they heard them and they put them to the first bit of the film and they said, OK, we're going to give you a go. So I did, suddenly went, to 99, 2000, I think, I went into my first film. Then Griffin Dunn, who was a friend of the guy who directed my film, he wanted Beck to do his out his score for his film, but that hadn't worked in some way. And he he said, "Can I come over from New York to see you?" And he came in, and I I just played a drum machine pattern, and he said, "That sounds great." You know? <laughs> he said, I, mean, I, mean, "I think it wasn't a preset. I had to, but I was working on something, so I was just sort of showing him I knew my way around the studio." Yes, and he said, I, "Well, you know, you've got the gig." So then I did two films back to back. And then I did another one. Um, I did a big, a big um, Dutch film. Uh, and uh, then, uh, you know, and then I did nothing. It was like, like that. Then it all dis it disintegrated. And then I started doing some small documentaries. And then, uh, then I did some work with Bertolucci. He asked me to work on his film, giving him music, not my own, finding music from 1968. No cliche, no filler. Um, and then I did that, and through that, then I got to work on, I worked with John Glazer on Sexy Beast, but he sacked me before I even made any music. And then some other people, and slowly then I met Nick Broomfield, and I started working with him, and then I made six films with him. So, and that, then I turn around and I think, my day job is being a songwriter, 
And yet I've now been scoring films and making music for documentaries for about twice as long as I was ever in bands. Mm -hmm. So it's, so that's where I am, you know, that's where I find myself now. Right. Blimey. So then the, the, um, when did the call come for sort of the, the archiving of the Dream Academy? We made a best, once I worked with Richard Curtis on About Time, and that had been a hit film. So I was in Los Angeles again for the first time in a long time. And I went to see Rhino, who had the Dream Academy thing. I said, will you do a box set? And they said, no, we won't do a box set. We'll do a best of. Because, you know, things were happening for me. I think when things are happening, people are more interested. So, and, you know, we'd had Dario G had done the sample. So we'd had another big hit with, with that. With, with the Northern Town Chorus. And then, um, so that came out. And then I realised that Rhino licensed, you know, Warner's licensed, licensed when people wanted. And then Cherry Red suddenly came about a year ago and said, you know, would you like to get involved? And I got involved about a year ago and worked through it. Blimey, that's fantastic. Because it is, it is amazing to hear all your tracks cds you know five and six and seven which are just fascinating aren't they they're just so many great songs on there oh, so pleased i love them i mean to find that stuff and those demos you know i couldn't believe it probably double-minded was one of the first things we possibly ever did in a studio with david's brother and playing the you know the engineer and uh and jeff travis loved it we tried to do it on the second album but it was never that good but the demo when i heard it I was like this is great or last day of the war which we did straight after life in the northern town they're like two days later um and they'd never really you know it, it yeah i was i was i i, I loved and putting them to, i wanted each one of those to be like an album where we'd have a sequence and i know people don't listen like that anymore but when, and when you've got seven albums, when you've four albums of, that didn't come out, it was a lot of work to get what's going to be on which album, how they might run together in a nice way, you know. And that's why I called them each by different names, you know, so it just wasn't the extra tracks. You know? No, absolutely. And um, Heaven, parts one and two, that finishes track uh, the, the seventh. What's the story behind that particular track? Because that's a real fan favourite, isn't it? That started as These Walls, which was probably the first song Gilbert and I wrote together, and the demo of which is on... Um, on the on the on the new album um which we did at the same time as uh, exactly on the same session as as double-minded um when diane keaton asked us after northern town was a hit in america she asked us to do the music for a film with um howard shaw who did uh you know the the, the, the uh the Hobbit, uh, no, not The Hobbit, you know, uh, Lord of the Rings, you know, who's giant. Uh, he, we went in the studio with him and we came, I said, look, we've got this great tune. We thought it was a great tune, but we'd never put these walls out. So he said, yeah, that's great. This is perfect. So, and then I had to write a song around it. So then I wrote the song and we used it as a B-side later. And, and you know, it was, pro uh, it was produced by, I mean, it was mixed by um, the guy who did... Um, Bridge over troubled water. You know, we went to, to, to work with him, and uh, and so there were two parts to it, and only one had ever come out on the B side of can't remember Love Parade or something. No, it wasn't Love Parade. No, of course not. Anyway, and uh, so the other section had never come out. Only Heaven Part One. So I got to put them back together, find the tapes, splice them together into it. 
And, and yes. Last year of the war, part one and two, part two had never, it was just a fragment. And I found that and we put that together too. Actually, you did very well because I did an interview with dear old Sid Griffin this week because his box set came out and he said he started in 2019 and it was a bit difficult. And then the lockdown and then the partner that was in the band passed away. So you did remarkably well being able to put all this out in such a quick time and not four years. Such hard work. I can't tell you. I didn't, you know, I don't think anyone. Now you say that it's great because I can. I thought people thought I was mad to spend so much time on it just to get it, just to get it right. You know, it's a lot of work. God, it's a lot of work to get it the way you want, and then to get the credits right. You know, because you can't get, you can't allow it to be wrong. Once it's out on the internet and it's wrong, it stays wrong. You know. And did it? Um, did you sort of collaborate at all with Kate? And um... no. I don't I didn't I don't think I even told them at first. I just got on with it. Um, and because they were doing their own thing and, you know, post the band splitting up, we're friends, of course, because it changed our lives. I mean, we're good friends. And Gilbert and I worked on some things and Kate, I always see in different things. But I just, you know, I, I just know how to do it. I got on with it. And then I told them what was happening and how it was and all the things. And then it was been so lovely because. We had to sign autographs, like 500 cards for the first copies of the album. And they all came here. And then we had dinner. And then we met again. And now we're now we're meeting again next month for, for all to have dinner again. And because it's really close. Now I'm speaking to them every, I speak every couple of days to them. And it's so lovely, you know, because they've already, I think the box set is like, you know, you know, it's been very well received. So it's it's very, it's very exciting. You know, it's some of it's 40-year-old music, but but that brings us back to the thing is I don't think it, it it hasn't dated because it never it was never of its time. No. It's interesting you mentioned America, that that uh, Jeff Dexter went to because there's a couple of tracks. I really loved B-sides and and rarities and other bits and pieces. Because there's quite a few. Do do oh, I kept thinking, oh, this sounds a bit like America, this track. So there's quite a nice acoustic vibe in this this particular collection, isn't there? Yes, yes, you're right. Well, that's how it was. And the the more of the acoustic things were, you know, that didn't go on the albums that weren't so as arranged. Um, yeah, they, that's they were pretty live. We just sort of put put them up in the studio, and we'd made these tapes to, 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 to with the drums and with sound effects and things on them with Gilbert and I because we wanted to sound better, you know, and we didn't want to have a band. And so that was that was quite an unusual thing to do at the time. And so those those. We just set those up in a big barn, you know, and press play and play through every song. A lot of those are on this. Uh... Yes, it's brilliant. Did you did you find because when you're in the eye of the storm of being in this kind of industry job or whatever, you know, this kind of moment, there's not much time to think about anything. As you sort of mentioned, you have 18 months on one album, then it's the second, and then that's all over, and you think, blimey, then you have to sort of struggle to get to the next part of your life going back and doing this project did that help you kind of process some of it looking at the photographs looking at the sleeves looking at various bits and pieces and thinking my god look at us back then it, it really did I, I i you know because what you do as a musician is you just move on you finish you move on life there's so much in music to learn there's so much of interest and then it's like the same with films you got to finish one you put your heart and soul into it then you got to move on 
And Jess, you got you get into this thing of letting it go. I think all musicians do what well, at your peril if you hold on to the past, it's no good. So, but you know, I'm aware because Life in the Northern Town and uh and the songs in the films pay, you know, to help me have a life. So uh, you know, with the film things one does, that's how you work and live as a musician, you know. So um, but what amazed me was that I really loved the stuff. I was like, I had to listen to it thousands and hundreds and hundreds of times, all the mastering. I had to get it right. And the mastering kept changing the sound of it. So I, I love how this sound is. I don't want it to sound, if I listen to Nick Drake, I don't want it to listen to like a pumped up modern version. And the guy understood, but we had to get to that place. So I listened to the stuff again and again, and I was always half in tears or thinking, this is beautiful, waiting for a part that Kate played or a little tiny bit on the fade where Gilbert played is amazing. And I thought, in the end, I thought we were really lucky to meet each other. It was just really lucky because this combination of the three of us, you know, we each did our thing in the band. We each contributed and made our sound. And even when we were on a bad day, if we were just playing someone else's song in a room, the three of us together, and we were sloppy and not good, we'd still sound like ourselves. We always just had that thing of sounding like ourselves. And I just thought this was this was a very, very lucky, life-changing thing. And um, and I love them. I mean, and then we we love each other. It's a, it's a very, very, it's a lovely. It's a lovely thing. Yes. Well, I love that there's a series, the classic album series that came out a few years ago, and they still repeat it on Sky Arts. And I love watching when they go back to an album and they go through the tracks and they, they fade bits and they put something, focus on one part, the bass line or the vocal or something. Yeah, I love, a little. I love and it. Yeah. It's just awesome, you know, and I, I can imagine you had also hearing that kind of bits that you probably hadn't heard for 40 years, thinking, my God, that was just us doing yeah, that thing. We really got that great. I was thinking the second album, which was much harder to make and wasn't with David, so it was, you know, but I thought, my God, Hugh Padgham was such a brilliant engineer. These things sound like they're made out of spun gold, you know, and to have Jerry Morales, one of the best drummers in the world, we'd been working with drum machines on the first album. So to hear this stuff and just hear the backing tracks, because I realized we, I, I remembered we had the backing tracks of the second album. And so to put those, that's how John Hughes had heard Power to Believe. And to hear those, I could really listen to the playing and the riffs and the way that Gilbert and I and Kate would sort of crochet, weave off. Each one of us wanted to have our riff, but those riffs intertwined in these very delicate, intricate ways. It was, uh, I was really moved by it. Yes. I, I love, I love this. I mean, if this is the last thing we ever do, it's, you know, fantastic. I, and also, I love your uh, the seventh disc because it has all those versions of love on, yes. which gets very funky. Because let's face it, we were all sort of sitting around in teepees and sitting on ley lines and sort of chanting Harry Krishna at some time of our eighties and nineties. So oh. it's really it's lovely to have that kind of memory coming back. Actually, listen to those songs and that that lovely innocent hippydom which we all we adored during that period. Fantastic, you're right. It, us too. <laughs> yes, and it's really nice because I know that. Uh, Laura Logic, Essential Logic, has got their John Peel session coming out very soon. So um, it's nice that people are sort of uh, coming out of the woodwork. Yeah, Gilbert was talking about it the other day. I think he'd just spoken to us, seen her again. Yeah. 
yeah, yeah. So there you go. So on, so with this out, this is it. Then um, are you then working on more film stuff and just navigating those next next years? Oddly enough, I was just starting to get feeling like, what could I, you know, what was I going to do? And I, about three or four months ago, five months ago, six months ago, I got a call from Warner Brothers again in America, Warner Classics. And they've got this modern... And all the classical music and, and 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 ambient music is all on one new whole thing. And they called up and they said, "You know, can we can we pitch you an idea?" Of course, you know, great. My God, I was thinking, uh, you know, he said, "Listen, but first of all, let me say I'm a big fan of your work." I said, "Oh, great." I said, "Yeah, the Dream Academy. I love that record. You know, records. And so great." I said, "But this isn't about this. We've been listening to your film scores, and we wonder if you'd like to make that music for us, um, without any films." I said, "What, like sort of postmodern classical music?" And they said, "Yeah." And so I said, "Look, I go in to the studio, whether I got a film or not, and I just sit and I play and come up with stuff. That's I'll be doing that whether anybody's interested or not." And they said, well, we'd, we'd really like you to do that. So um, so I just before Christmas, I, I signed and I'm and I'm going to do that. So that's, that's amazing. That is fun because it's a whole new chapter of a different sort of thing um, to be to be doing at this stage. You know, um, it's 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 unknown territory in a way it's not because it's music but it is unknown territory so it's it's and it's a whole new thing you know it's going to be working with and funnily enough on Warner, with Warner Brothers again and and in America again so you know except it's all the world now isn't it it's all it's all the same thing anyway it's very it's very very it's it's great because you know it's another it's another chance and to get music out to people is what it really is to get yes out and do you ever miss playing live occasionally? Do you think, oh, that'd be quite nice? Not in a big way, but, you know, just to get out. It should, I, two years, three years ago, I got a, just as someone had got from Japan on on the on Facebook, just asked me would I come and play acoustic. And I thought, this is just what I need. I said, yeah, I would. Um, then they said, would Kate come after about a few weeks? And I said, I'll ask her. And she said, yes, I will. And I said, okay. And he said, well, would you bring another couple of players for the, like as the Dream Academy? And I said, yeah. So I went with a, Kate and a couple of other people and we just did three concerts in Japan and it was, it was fantastic. It was really, we were, and then McGee said, I've got this little chapel in Wales. Why don't you come down? And on my 60th birthday, we played we played in the chapel in Wales and I suddenly realised that Knife in a Northern Town, because I hadn't done it live for so long, and I'd just come back from Japan, but I hadn't tried it there, could really work like this, where I'd go, I'd drop the band down and go, oh, hey, oh, mama, get everybody doing it. It was like, <laughs> wow, this is fantastic. The whole place was singing it. But, but so, you know, yes, I would like to play live, but in a way, this is more interesting to go and make something new. I don't want to be a heritage act. That would be terrible. And what you realize is you can just slip into this thing where you're actually just playing those songs that are known and you, that's all you're doing. You're not mm -hmm. doing 
anything else and i don't that maybe that's okay but it's not moving forward in the same way i don't want it to be a museum thing music's living i sing with some group of different people around here people from other bands and we all just sing once a week for about three hours um uh and and we've been doing that for about 10 years and that's incredible we're all harmonizing and improvising you know i just you want to keep it living you know yes i think this is the the, the trick like david bowie on his last album black star yeah. you know it's always something kind of intriguing isn't there so um there you go i mean oh yeah just last thing if you could have whispered something to your 16 year old self i know you're a bit more advanced than most people is there anything in particular that you would have gone oh that would have been quite handy even though you started quite early in life uh, i you know the fear is a great motivator it can also destroy you, but it's. But I didn't discover that till much later. Um, the the motivation is funny. Is that is that you're so scared of falling that you open yourself up to places. So when I met Gilbert, I'd had two shots at things. It, it had been pretty good, but it had not done worked. And I started to open myself up to other ideas and him allowing him to come in and and i think there's some not to get too highfalutin about the idea but these you notice in great in scientific breakthroughs they're often two things that disparate things coming together or three disparate things that make a new invention i'm not saying that we were a new invention but in a way it was a new invention for me and it came about through failure and through the fear of failure and thinking I've got no safety net and then opening up to someone else and letting them have their say and then taking that and taking those bits and then putting my thing back in it and kicking it back and then someone else coming in and putting some, you know, it was all very, I, I perhaps my, I would have told my 16 year old self to be more open to trying everything, you know, trying things. Yes. I always remember going to see a guy called, I think his name, Michael Reynolds. He did these, these things called earthships, which were sort of off-grid homes, houses, kind of in the desert. And he said he just wants the freedom to fail, but know that, you know, it doesn't matter. You'll try again and you'll learn from your failure, yes. failings, so-called failings, but you'll make the next one better. But you've got to, and I think the 80s was like that with the unemployment thing. You could just kind of have a go. And it didn't really matter. But now we listen to a lot of that music. You think, oh, that's really interesting. But we it was really believed in it. You know, what we were doing, once the, we started down that road of opening up, we really believed in it. It's like, I can't tell you when people say, would you like life in the northern town? Would you do it in a slightly different way? It's like, different way? I got it exactly the way I wanted it to sound. I, I, That's what ruined me after that for working with other people because i just simply always said i've got to get it the way i believe we we treated the thing like art we were really you know we were really obsessed with getting you know i think gilbert would be made ill if he didn't play the exact combination of harmonics of a, of a different in, in inversion keyboard inversion he was you know these things were so important to us and the look I had to get the look exactly, you know, and the way the covers looked. Everything had to be exactly right. So it's a lifetime's work. Yes, actually, the photography on your um, inner sleeves are beautiful, actually, aren't they? Really, who was the photographer, by the way? Well, different people. Uh, Richard Horton did the first album and did a, quite a lot of the ones on in the booklet on the box set, and then Nick Knight. He was brought to us by Peter Savile, you know, and Savile has done all the. Uh, 
or the factory record, all the great factory records, yes. and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So um, it, it was, yeah. And yeah. They're gorgeous photographs. Really, the black and white ones are stunning. And did your parents, did they eventually go, blimey, it all worked out well, we can sleep at night? Only actually it had still been a huge worry. I think my mother always believed in me. After the other wife, my father, it was a huge, huge worry for him. I was going to end up in prison or something or dead or whatever. And only when Life in the Northern Town was a hit in England, and I think he met someone in that morning who said, oh, I've, I've just read about your son in The Times. My father said, what? And uh, <laughs> then it all changed. And then he said, you were just doing what I was doing because my father was breaking with tradition and he'd been in publishing, but he'd become an antique dealer and then he'd finally made good. He said, you know, it was like they thought you were, you were like saying you wanted to be a rag and bone man. So he then said he'd made good by following his own belief and I'd made good by following mine. So in the end, we became the best of friends, which was really wonderful. Oh, that's beautiful. Oh, it's a nice story. It's a nice way to end. But look, thank you ever so much, Nick. God, this has been amazing. And like I said, such fond memories of uh, watching that documentary on the Isle of Wight. Fantastic. I've only got to get my VHS out again to see it. I know. With your black gloves looking frozen. (laughs) It was that's, it was great. I loved it. Anyway, look, have a lovely evening and thanks again for your time. Will you let me know when it's... Where? Yes, I will. I'll put it out and send you or Matt a link. Yeah, Matt, whatever you like. Yeah, fantastic. Okay, well, thanks a lot. Thank you. Great. Take care. Cheers. Bye-bye. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. You probably gathered that. Anyway, a massive thank you to Nick for giving me the time for that interview. From the Dream Academy with their new box set that's coming out, Religion, Revolution, Railways, on Cherry Red Records, seven CD box set. Do check it out. It will change your life. This has been the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. If you want to contact me for some nice reason... You can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, just do C86 Show. All these interviews have been archived on Spotify, iTunes and Podbeam. It's a true story. Anyway, you can listen to them and, um, yes, enjoy. Anyway, have a great week and stay safe.